Good morning, everybody. We are going to be looking at Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18 this morning. So if you would please open your Bibles with me to that passage, Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Somebody once said that truth can be stranger than fiction. And one great example of that principle is found in Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18, which shows us that God's amazing grace can be awfully confounding to people, including to many Christians. Uh, This morning, we will attempt to work through this passage, uh, see what it means and how that meaning relates to the way every Christian in this room should think about and live out his or her life. But before we do that, let's pray for our teachability to God's Word, that the Holy Spirit who inspired this text and has preserved it might illumine it to us so that rather than processing information solely through our heads, the information will go into our heads, into our heart, and out our fingers and toes and into our world that uh, we might apply uh, what we should know about God's grace for New Testament Christians and be gracious people ourselves. Uh, in addition to praying for teachability, let's pray for our uh, troops, our peace officers, and our firefighters. All right, let's pray. All right, last Sunday in Acts chapter 10, we saw the Apostle Peter go to the city of Caesarea, the Roman capital of Judea, to present the claims of Christ to a Roman centurion and his family, friends and associates, Cornelius, the Roman centurion, his family, friends and associates. And Peter told them that by believing in Christ, they could have the forgiveness of sins. And amazingly, as soon as they heard that, they believed in Christ. And they were forgiven their sins, and they received the Holy Spirit, and then they were water baptized. So you might think that after all of that wonderful kind of thing happening in Acts chapter 10, that when Peter returns from the city of Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast back to Jerusalem and the leaders of the first church in Jerusalem, you might expect him to receive a hero's welcome, or at least a hearty pat on the back. Because surely none of the Christians in Jerusalem could find any a reason to complain about what happened in chapter 10, about Cornelius and his family and his friends and associates hearing the gospel, believing the gospel. You might think there's nothing to be upset about here. And if you're thinking that, all I can say is wrong Bible breath. As I say, truth is stranger than fiction. Somebody, and sometimes it's somebody's, doesn't like everything. Even though Peter's right in the dead center of God's will in sharing the gospel with Gentiles, there's a problem. And the problem, in summary, is the assumption of the the early church at the very beginning of the church age was since Jesus was and is the Jewish Messiah, and since for since the time of, of Moses, for Gentiles to worship in the congregation, in the camp, within the nation of Israel, they had to become proselytes to Judaism, and for males that involved males 
ritual circumcision, and for all of them that included submitting to the ceremonial law, including the kosher food regulations, since Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, and since in the Old Testament, prior to the coming of Jesus, for Gentiles uh, to worship God in the congregation of Israel, they had to become proselytes to Judaism, it was just assumed that on the New Testament side of the cross, that while Jews could believe and be saved, Gentiles would have to become proselytes to Judaism first, and then they could believe in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, be saved. They had to kind of pre-qualify by um, embracing Judaism, embracing um, and submitting to the Old Testament law, including uh, the kosher food regulations and submitting to ritual, ba- ritual uh, circumcision. So that's the assumption. So the real problem is Peter has spiritual cooties. He's uh, been uh, enjoying fellowship, close fellowship with Gentiles. He's been eating with Gentiles, which almost certainly includes non-kosher food. And to top it all off, he just told Gentiles all they've got to do is believe in the Jewish Messiah and be saved. Of course, 2,000 years later, we look back at that and say, man, why would anybody think that? It's kind of a no-brainer, isn't it? Whosoever will may come. Uh, now, if anything, some evangelical Christians think uh, that Jewish folks or people from a Jewish background uh, can't simply believe in Christ. It's like they've got to renounce their Jewishness or something, which is, if that's not incipient anti-Semitism, I'm not sure what it is. But uh, it's funny, if anything, the flip side operates today. But we have no problem in America understanding Gentiles can come to Jesus just as they are. But that's the issue that underlies this, and that's why it's so important. And uh, so we're going to see this work out. And basically, we're going to see in these 18 verses three things. First, Christian critics, friendly fire episode. Christian critics question Peter's message and method in going to and sharing with Cornelius and the Gentiles in Caesarea. That's verses 1 through 3. Then Peter will explain the divine authority of his message and method in Caesarea with Cornelius, and he does, he does that in chapter 11, verses 4 through 17. And then we have kind of the surprise happy ending in verse 18. We'll tell you about that in a minute. But let's look at Christian critics who uh, criticize and question Peter's message and method in going to and ministering to the household of Cornelius, as we tend to call it. Look at verses 1 through 3. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. The word of God is a general term for scripture, but here in this context it would be focusing on the gospel, the good news about Jesus uh, specifically, that he's the Savior, we're the saves, all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Or as Paul says in Romans 1, uh, don't be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and also to the Gentile. Verse 2. And so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, everybody's already heard about these Gentiles being preached to and told they were saved. When Peter came up to Jerusalem, Those who were circumcised took issue with them. In general context, uh, those who were circumcised would be used to describe Jewish folks as opposed to Gentile folks. But here, 
everybody in the church in Jerusalem, or at least 99.8% of them are all Jewish, so they're all circumcised, the males. But the uh, expression in the original Greek is a little truncated, and it's not the generic way to refer to Jewish, Jewish people generally. This is saying within uh, the set of the believers in Jerusalem, a subset, especially of leaders who have, they thought, really understood this and thought it through, uh, they are convinced that there's no salvation for Gentiles apart from circumcision. Now watch this. They're not teaching salvation by works. They're saying before one can be a Gentile, can be saved by grace through faith, he or she has to pre-qualify, and it's a he, uh, part of that pre-qualification and becoming a proselytism, uh, proselyte to Judaism is to submit to ritual circumcision. So that group took issue with Peter, especially, and and they said in verse 3, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them and enjoyed fellowship with them and were hosted by them, and you even told them all they have to do is believe in Jesus to be saved. Now, how dare you do that? They're kind of starting with the ate with them first, which is kind of arguing from lesser to greater. They're going to really, if they were allowed to develop their case, they'd go uh, from, hey, you ate possibly non-kosher food, and if you didn't eat non-kosher food, you ate food out of uh, pots and pans and plates uh, that had at one time contained non-kosher food. Those are the kind of things they're starting with, but what they're really upset about beyond that is the fact that he's offered uh, the gospel to Gentiles as Gentiles told them they could believe and be forgiven of their sins. So that's the big issue underlying here, and the big question is, is Christianity a uh, a sect of Judaism, or is it the completion of Old Testament Judaism? And of course, as Jesus says, you don't put new wine into old wineskins. This is a whole new wineskin, this New Testament dispensation, uh, this church age we're living in and enjoy so much. So they're basically saying to Peter, hey, you got cooties, and you got a lot of splendid to do. And so instead of a pat on the back... Peter actually gets a slap in the face. Now, again, for us in, in the year 2015, we can't imagine why anybody would think this, that Gentiles can't be saved by faith alone, but uh, that's the issue in its context. And uh, let's move from there. Peter uh, being questioned by critics to now, verses 4 through 17, Peter explains the divine authority of his message and method. And he does basically three things here. He says, hey, look, the Lord had directly taught him what he's teaching about grace, what he's teaching about the ceremonial law, that it's okay now. The uh, training wheels of the ceremonial law have been removed from the uh, boxcar of spirituality, as it were. So he's saying, what, I, what I'm uh, uh, saying and practicing in regard to the Old Testament food uh, rules, uh, was taught to me by God himself. God gave me this theology of New Testament church age grace. That's the first thing he says in verses 4 through 10. Then he's going to say, the Lord directly sanctioned my visit to the Gentiles. He called and commissioned me to go, and I went because I was under divine imperative. And then he's going to say, the Lord directly confirmed the salvation of the Gentiles as soon as they believed in Christ without any pre-qualifications, and, and without becoming uh, proselytes to Judaism or submitting to 
ritual circumcision under the Old Testament law. So let's look at verses 4 through 10. Peter's explaining his authority, his divine authority, or the divine authority given him for his uh, message and method that's uh, being questioned and scrutinized. And he says first in verses 4 through 10, the Lord had directly taught me that the training wheels are off the boxcar, that uh, we're no longer under the ceremonial Old Testament law. Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them an orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa, and I was praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object coming down like a great sheet. Let's translate that tablecloth, because that's what it means. Lowered by four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. This is not a mistake. You know? And when I had fixed my gaze on it and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth, all kinds of them, including non-kosher animals, and wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said to the voice, to God, by no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. I'm, I eat kosher. I'm a good Jewish boy. I don't eat ham sandwiches or catfish or anything like that. But a voice from heaven answered a second time. First it said, Arise, kill, and eat. Then it says, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. You're not under the Old Testament law as a New Testament believer. You don't have to submit to the ceremonial requirements of kosher uh, as a New Testament Christian. Now, you can, if you want to, uh, you can embrace that as conviction. It's a very healthy uh, way to eat. But food doesn't make you more or less spiritual. It doesn't get you any brownie points. If you hammer out conviction stricter than the Word of God in any area, by all means, and you're doing it to the glory of God, uh, live according to those convictions, and God bless you. But don't use that as a litmus test for anybody else's spirituality, and don't let that kind of thing convince you you're super spiritual. You care more, you love the Lord more than other people who don't share your particular stricter-than-Scripture convictions. Okay. So the Lord had directly taught him that it's okay now to eat things that previously, under the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, uh, would have been on the don't list. Now, I want you to notice something. I'm convinced that when Peter gets uh, questioned and scrutinized here, that he's more than happy and not offended uh, to try to explain what happened. Because I think he he realizes, hey, at the beginning of chapter 10, I would I didn't understand this either. At the beginning of chapter 10, until God had directly taught him and directly sanction his visit, and directly confirm the salvation of Gentiles, he didn't know if it worked like that either. He just assumed that the Gentiles had to become proselytes and then believe in the Jewish Jesus. But the Jewish Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, is in fact the Savior of the world. Okay, The training wheels have been removed, and part of those training wheels are the ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic Law. Look at verses 11 through 14. The Lord had not only taught him his theology of grace, of church-age grace, the Lord had directly sanctioned his visit to the Gentiles. Verses 11 through 14. Uh, Peter says, Behold, at that moment, after the third uh, descent and then disappearance of the tablecloth with the non-kosher food on it, 
Behold, at that moment, three men appeared at the house in which we were staying, that was Simon the Tanner's house in Joppa, having been sent to me from Caesarea, about 30 miles north of Joppa. And as we're going to see, and uh, you'll remember from last week, uh, Cornelius, who was a God-fearer, a Gentile who was wanting to know more about and worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but had not yet received uh, circumcision or had become a full-fledged proselyte, uh, he was given information from God through an angel that he should that Cornelius should send for Peter, go to Joppa, send a delegation to Joppa, a couple of people down there, and have Peter come up so he can fill them in, kind of connect the dots of God's plan and focus him on Jesus as Savior. So uh, Peter's praying. He gets this uh, uh, tablecloth vision. As soon as that finishes, boom, three men are knocking on the door. They're from uh, uh, Cornelius' house, 30 miles away in Caesarea, and Peter says in verse 12, And so the Spirit told me to go with them and um, to do so without misgivings. And then he says, and he's standing in Jerusalem talking to his critics when he says this, And these six brethren, these guys standing by me, these fellow believers, probably originally from Jerusalem, but they just happened to be in Joppa with Peter when he uh, left to go to Caesarea, these six brethren who are standing here right now also went with me and entered the Gentiles' house in Caesarea, entered Cornelius' house. Verse 13, and he, that is the man in Caesarea, the Roman centurion, Cornelius, the God-fearer who was told to send for Peter, he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house saying, send to Joppa and have Simon, who's called Peter, brought here, and he will bring words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household, men and women and rich and poor and socially uh, uh, acclaimed and those probably household servants with no social standing whatsoever. Um, that's God's equal rights amendment, you know, whosoever will may come. So he's just saying, Peter's in context saying, look, uh, what I'm teaching about ceremonial law and kosher was taught to me directly by God. The reason I went to Caesarea, uh, to Caesarea and uh, enjoyed hospitality and meals uh, with Cornelius and his household is because the Lord had directly sanctioned it. And then the reason I preached to them and told them after they believed that they were truly saved without any preconditions was because the Lord had directly confirmed uh, their salvation. Let's look at that in verses 15 through 16. Uh, and Peter says, as I began to speak the words of my invitation, and the beginning of his invitation is found in Acts 10.43, uh, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us, the apostles in the 120, at the beginning, the beginning of the New Testament era, the beginning of the New Testament church was started on uh in May of 33 A.D., and it's recorded in Acts 2, verses 1 through 13. Verse 16, And I remember the word of the Lord, which he, how he used to say to us, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit, Acts 1, 5, not many days from now. Just before the ascension, the Lord said, Look, you guys are going to be identified with the body of Christ, placed into the body of Christ, placed into the New Testament capital C church, 
through the ministry of the Holy Spirit 10 days after the ascension. And that's what happens in Acts 2. Now that, uh, fast forward a couple of years later, Peter's interacting with Cornelius and now asking the questions that people have in Jerusalem. He's saying, what happened to us when we were baptized by the Spirit and placed into the body of Christ, the capital C church, happened to them as soon as they believed. And God did that to confirm uh, their full salvation without having to become a proselyte to Judaism before they could believe in Christ and be saved. Now look at uh, verse 15. He says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. We're talking about the beginning of the New Testament era, the New Testament dispensation, the New Testament church. The New Testament church is distinct from Old Testament Israel. The New Testament church does not replace Old Testament Israel. God continues to have a special place in his program for the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the future through the millennium into eternity. And he also has a special place for New Testament Christians as well, Jew or Gentile. But uh, it's a serious mistake to equate the New Testament church with Old Testament Israel. There are two different, under two different economies spiritually uh, and uh, that's why you have an Old Testament and a New Testament, among other things. Now, let me ask you a question. Why do people like me tell you that the church age began in Acts 2? And I know our Pentecostal friends uh, act like the things that you read about in Acts 2 are normative that should happen to every real believer every time anybody comes to faith. But, in fact, if you look at this strategically, uh, the event in Acts 2 is not your average everyday church service or revival or anything like that. It's the beginning of a whole new era, a whole new dispensation. And um, let's think about why Peter would say, hey, they received the same gift as we did after believing um, like, like we did at the very beginning. The beginning of what? The universe? No, the beginning of the New Testament church. Well, follow me here. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus promises the apostles that in the future he'd build his church. You know, I will build my church on the rock truth that he's the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? Now, will, obviously, is future tense. So he's talking about something that hasn't started yet in the midst of his ministry in Matthew 16. Then in Acts 1, 4 through 5, the Lord, the risen, resurrected Christ, promises the apostles to wait for what he's promised you're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now, right? And that's what happens in Acts 2. Now, 10 days after the ascension, the apostles and the 120, including the 12 apostles, uh, were baptized with the Holy Spirit. To be baptized means to be immersed, placed into something, or identified with something. Um, the baptism of the Holy Spirit places... Believers in Christ, Jew or Gentile, religious or irreligious, uh, American or Afghan, into the New Testament body of Christ, the capital C church. That's much bigger than any individual local church or any Christian denomination. Now, as an outward sign of that in Acts 2, the believers there who'd been baptized with the Holy Spirit and put in the body of Christ began speaking in tongues. The Greek term that Luke wrote is glossa which can be translated languages. They began to speak in languages they had not naturally learned and did not know. 
uh, or at least they were heard in languages by the various uh, people groups that were in Jerusalem for that uh, Pentecost Sunday, right? So that's their experience in Acts 2. Now in Acts 10, the same kind of thing happened uh, the first time we've got a concerted collective uh, presentation of the gospel to Gentiles who believe and uh, receive forgiveness of sins and are baptized with the Holy Spirit, putting them in the body of Christ. Look at this in, uh, let's go back to Acts 10, uh, verse 43. Peter begins his invitation by saying this. He says, uh, of him, of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, all the prophets, all the Old Testament, bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes, including Gentiles who believe, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Now, while Peter was still speaking those words and the people were, were believing, as soon as he said believe, they believed. The Holy Spirit fell upon those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers who had come with Peter, those six other guys, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also who had just believed, just like the 120 had received the gift of the Holy Spirit to mark the beginning of the church age in Acts 2 with the speaking in languages. Now we've got the first church age uh, concerted penetration of the gospel with a collective group of Gentiles, and they have the same experience. Verse 46, for they began hearing them, the new believers, speaking with languages and exalting God. Uh, Cornelius would have been very good with Latin, would have been very good with Greek, would have known very little Aramaic, and he's speaking in Aramaic or Hebrew, and these Jewish guys have come uh, with Peter, are hearing him, Cornelius, praise God in a language he did not naturally learn, and they immediately said, that's what happened to us in Acts 2. So that's what Peter's referring to here in chapter 11 when he has to uh, defend or better explain what happened, he says, uh, just you know, just straight up to him, uh, those who were questioning, he said, as I began to speak, and my invitation was, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins, they believed. And when they believed, the Holy Spirit fell on them, and they began speaking in other languages. And I remembered how the Lord had told us, uh, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is what happened back in Acts 2. This is happening to them. It's obviously a divine validation. These people, Cornelius and his uh, assembled friends and family, are just as saved as Peter, uh, James, and John back in Jerusalem, right? And he says, therefore, if God gave to them the same gift he gave to us after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in, in, in their way? Uh, or stand in God's way. Uh, so that's pretty cool. So we've got um, in Acts 10, and now to explain in, in chapter 11, uh, just testimony and validation from God that as soon as these Gentiles believed, they had been truly regenerate. They'd truly been saved and put into the, the body of Christ because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit in this strategic location being validated by speaking in languages they did not actually learn. Now, in general, after you get, and we're going to see this one more time in the book of Acts in chapter 19, but other than these unique singular, kind of singularity situations where the church starts in Acts 2, first concerted Gentile uh, 
penetration in Acts 10, explained in chapter 11, excuse me, and then in chapter 19, a really interesting situation that's very unique. After that, as you read the epistles in the New Testament, it's pretty clear that the New Testament writers just assume that after these initial unique situations that establish the church and get it up and running, from that point on, all believers on this side of the cross are not only forgiven of sins and redeemed and justified and made heirs and adopted as sons into the family of God with full heirship rights. Uh, it's also true at the moment of saving faith, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is not experiential, spiritual but real, puts all believers, regardless of color, country, and culture, Jew or Gentile, in this case, uh, regardless of denominational preference, puts all true believers into the capital C body of Christ, universal church, which is uh, the only church that really counts. Uh, ultimately, although visibly the manifestation of the universal church would be seen in individual local churches. First Corinthians 12, 13 is an example of the way well, the New Testament assumes and teaches uh, the normative status quo in this regard. Uh, Paul says, for by one spirit we have all been baptized, identified, uh, placed into the body of Christ, baptized into one body, capital B body, the church of, of, of Christ, the capital C church, the body of Christ whether Jews or Gentiles, whether slaves or free, doesn't matter. And then uh, in Colossians and Ephesians, we we read about the uh, the church, the New Testament church, is a mystery in the sense it was not revealed in the Old Testament. It was a new, fresh uh, uh, dynamic that begins in the aftermath of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And that includes the fact that Paul emphasizes this, in Colossians and Ephesians, that Gentiles who believe in Christ are full-fledged members of the capital C Church, the body of Christ, just as much as uh, someone from a Jewish background. Okay, So, wow, we're seeing uh, Christian critics uh, question Peter about his message and method back in chapter 10 with Gentiles in Caesarea. Peter, I think, happily explains the divine authority of his message and method. He says, Hey, the Lord directly taught me with a vision that we're not under the ceremonial food regulations anymore. The Lord directly sanctioned and commissioned me to go and interact with the Gentiles in Caesarea. And the Lord directly supernaturally confirmed the salvation of the Gentiles when they believed by giving them the same gift of languages he gave us at the beginning of the church age back in Acts chapter 2. So that's what's going on. Now, verse 17, and, and I just read it, but after making that presentation to these folks in Jerusalem, Peter then summarizes what he's said in his conclusions. He says, therefore, in view of all the above, if God gave to them, Cornelius and his family and his uh, friends and associates, the same gift he gave to us after believing with no prequalifications, in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way and say, no, you're second class, you're not really saved yet, you've got to submit to ritual circumcision or you can't eat a ham sandwich, you can't be saved, that kind of thing. So we've seen Christian critics question Peter's message and method. We've seen Peter explain the divine authority of his message and method and then in closing ask a direct question of his critics 
And now we have a really big miracle in verse 18. This is a surprise I talked about earlier. Uh, and here it is. When they heard this, these are the people that were fighting mad with Peter a few verses before, they quieted down, they stopped complaining, stopped criticizing, and they glorified God. Why are they glorifying God? Because Peter didn't make it about him. He made it about the Lord. The Lord had taught me this theology of grace. The training wheels are off uh, my spiritual life and all of our spiritual lives now. The Lord had sanctioned my visit. The Lord had confirmed the salvation the Gentiles had believed. When they heard this, they glorified God because God had done all that in and through Peter, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Now, in your uh, in your study notes in the bulletin, I've got a couple of pages on repentance, and uh, we've seen this before, but let me mention just in passing, for lack of time, I won't go into a lot of detail, but we got you got the data here if you want to read it and think about it some more. Uh, it's pretty obvious that Luke, as he writes the book of Acts, uses the term uh, pistuo to believe, and the term metanaeo, usually translated repent, but it means to change one's mind or attitude. He uses those ter- two terms. Not I used to say two sides of one coin, and I don't like that because the two sides are different, but they're just bonded together, right? With whatever's in the middle there, in the, in the middle of the coin. Uh, really, I'd, never, I'd rather say. I think more accurately, I need to say that saving repentance. Metanaeo is the verb, metanoia is the noun form, uh, which means to change your mind. Meta means to change, metamorphosis. Uh, nous or noia means to think, change the way you think. It's, it's not possible for a, a, a sinner, an unbelieving, unregenerate person, to believe in Christ as Savior, active, receptive trust in Christ as Savior, without changing their mind about whatever they thought about their sin, their selves, and their Savior before they believed. What do I mean by that? Uh, in order for me to trust Jesus Christ as Savior uh, with my mind and full consent of the will, active receptive trust and his sufficiency to save me because he is the Jewish Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. He's my Savior. He died for my sin debt. He rose again and validated the saving power of his uh, atonement by his literal bodily supernatural resurrection. But I can't do that. I can't believe in Jesus Christ like that without changing my mind about myself, uh, excuse me, about my sin. I've got it. Uh, at my worst, I break my own standards, much less God's. And God's word certainly says, uh, there's no righteous, none, no, not one. All of sin comes from the glory of God. So I'm changing my mind about whatever I thought before. Maybe some unbelievers don't think about sin. Maybe they redefine sin. Maybe they blame the sin on their mother or the president or somebody else. Uh, Or maybe they just say sin doesn't exist. You know, It's a social construct construct or whatever. But you change your mind about your sin. You got it. Yourself, you can't fix it. A lot of people believe they're sinners, but they go to religions to try to put on the uh, uh, fig leaves of self-manufactured salvation, and that doesn't work. So to trust in Christ, you must change your your mind about whatever uh, inadequate conceptions you had about your sin, uh, either redefining it or rationalizing it or denying it or whatever you do with it prior to salvation. Yeah, I'm a sinner, and I deserve punishment. It's my fault. 
myself, I can't fix it. I'm not going to try to put fig leaves on Brad McCoy so God will look at me and want me to come to heaven and, and think that makes me good enough to go to heaven. Sin, uh, self, and the Savior. But Jesus is the one that can affect my salvation. He's the one who paid for my sins. So uh, by definition, uh, believing in Christ as active receptive trust involves changing your mind about those kind of categories. And so I think that's why uh, Luke clearly uses those terms as interchangeable, not as separate and uh, distinct things. And you see that clearly in verses 17 and 18 here. Uh, Peter says, if God gave to them the same gift he gave to us after they believed, after they pistuoed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in their way? And then the folks uh, processing what Peter said in response say, wow, they believed? Well, that means that uh, the Gentiles also have expressed the repentance. That's a noun, so that's metanoia there. Uh, they believed, that means they repented. They repented, that means they believed. Don't stay over there, come over here. Is that two things or one thing? Don't stay over there, come over here. That's two statements, but if I could just say, come over here. And if you come over here, by definition, you're not over there anymore. You can't come over here and stay over there. You can't believe without changing your mind about your sin, yourself, and your and your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's really important. And I think a lot of times Americans want to make repentance, saving repentance, uh, what would be more properly described as contrition. I don't doubt that, that when people come to faith and receive the gift of salvation, they really, really feel sorry about their sins, and they really, really feel badly about their sins and uh, the, sta- the state they're in, right? I, I know I did when I, the day I got saved. But, but the Bible's not saying we've got to have a certain amount of emotional reaction and revulsion in that sense from our sins, it, 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 although I'm sure we, we all have contrition. But that's not a commandment. That's kind of a result of the whole dynamic. To say to repent means to change your mind about your sin, uh, yourself and your salvation, you do that when you believe. You can't believe without doing that. You can't repent without believing. You can't stay over there uh, if you come over here kind of thing. Uh, I could do that better, but we don't have enough time today. Well, I'll get another tr- no, Give me another try next time, okay, or some other time. Uh, but, yeah, I'd be glad to talk about that later if you want me to. All right. Now, as I say, verse 18 is the happy ending because the critics – uh, listen to Peter's description of what happened, and they say, wow, glory to God. God has saved Gentiles as Gentiles. We are in a, a whole new era of God's program. Uh, he's given Gentiles the repentance, the, the faith that, that uh, embraces eternal life. Uh, and, and the critics become kind of cheerleaders now for the grace of God, and that's always wonderful uh, to see. And I can tell you, that's a big miracle. When you can, when critics that are upset about the theological church issues, uh, and they're very emotional, and you try to explain what happened, uh, and you may feel like you're right in the center of God's will, but, uh, you know, uh, somebody's upset about something, and a lot of times they won't let it go, but here they let it go. And uh, so you see uh, a huge miracle, and that's a great thing, because rather than uh, uh, kind of stopping the progress of the church, is going to be able to move on. Now, just between you and me, don't let anybody else know this, uh, this whole idea that Gentiles have to be circumcised before they can believe and be saved in Jewish Messiah doesn't totally get uh, wiped and washed out of the system until Acts 15. Uh, it continues to bubble up after the uh, 
first missionary journey, when Paul and Barnabas see hundreds, if not thousands, come to faith, Gentiles, you know, Greco-Roman Gentiles doing all kinds of bizarro things, almost as bad as modern America probably, is that bad? And so there has to be a big formal meeting about this to really nail this down. But uh, once we get to the uh, response here, the critics, it's obvious God's at work and he's going to help uh, the early church to kind of go from fuzzy to focused on this very important issue. Uh, take this to heart. God's amazing grace can be awfully confounding to people, including to a lot of Christians. The fact that we're saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone uh, for all human beings sounds like it makes a lot of sense to us 2,000 years after the fact. But it was a shock to uh, the original church who felt uh, rightly so that the Gentiles were so perverse for the most part and uh, so far from ceremonial cleanliness spiritually that they had to kind of pre-qualify to receive the gospel. But there are no pre-qualifications whosoever will may come. Uh, And that's true for people who are religious or irreligious or white or black or moral or immoral before they come to faith, rich or poor, American or Afghan, uh, Jew or Gentile, as Romans 4, 5 says, but to the one who does not work, who doesn't submit to ritual circumcision or water baptism to pre-qualify to be saved, but to the one who does not work but believes in Christ, who justifies the ungodly, that person, that ungodly person who believes uh, his faith or her faith is reckoned as righteousness. Uh, so that's very essential uh, to uh, the theological integrity of the church to deal with this issue uh, the way it was dealt with straight up, uh, you know, above board, over the table, not under the table, no deals, no secrets here. Let's just focus on the grace of God and the greatness of the grace of God to save all who believe in Christ. Uh, beyond that, I would say that uh, for those of us who believe in the grace of God and understand the fullness of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, we should be gracious and giving and forgiving ourselves. I've known a lot of people who know a lot about the theology of grace who aren't very gracious people, and I myself can be uh, sarcastic and petty and uh, not what I need to be, and that's a very bad, very a bad disconnect between our deepest held convictions and then our conversations or our conduct. And when we do that kind of thing, we're concealing whose we are, and we're not revealing whose we are in Christ. Uh, and, and again, um, we've got the training wheels off the uh, engine of uh, spirituality as the New Testament church believers. And uh, spirituality for us cannot be mechanical or robotic or just follow a list of rules. It's about a relational connection with a real person, our Lord Jesus Christ, So rather than focusing on a list of rules, we focus on a ruler, our Lord Jesus Christ, who's first our Savior and the lover of our souls and the giver of eternal life. And because he's our Lord and our God and our Savior and our best friend, we put him in the center of our pie chart and we do good, good works. We do the right things for the right reasons, but since we're focusing on him to motivate us and to empower us, we never notice how wonderful we are, or all we're giving up, or sacrificing, or doing, or saying, uh, to the glory of God, it's all about the grace of God in Christ. Let's stop and uh, conclude with a word of prayer.